Alright, hello internet, this is Copycam Council uh, once again. Yes, I know it's uh, a very, uh, it's, it's another episode from our last week, very last week episode. So yeah, uh, we're thinking of uh, uh, uploading more frequently now as there's so many events that we need to unfold within, you know, what's happening in domestically and internationally, Adi. So uh, first off, what are we going to talk about? I think we should address the big elephant in the room. We're going to be voting soon, aren't we, Hafiz? Yes, uh, the dissolution of the parliament uh, recently announced by Prime Minister. So we're going to a general election, but the date is not uh, determined yet. So looking forward to that. So yeah, for everybody, I think everybody here seems a bit aware, but for those that just want a bit more context, parliament has just been dissolved. Uh, there was a press statement made by the Prime Minister of Malaysia uh, back on Monday, I believe. Uh, it was on the 10th of October 2022. There's a big hoo-ha about a press statement right after a secret meeting was held between the Prime Minister of Malaysia, Ismail Sabri, and the young Dibaton Agong, the King of Malaysia. And many people speculated that this was going to be it, that we'll finally dissolve the parliament and we'll be moving towards uh, the 15th, uh, 15th, right, correct? 15th general election of right. Malaysia. So this has a lot of people's uh, toes riled up, especially because if any of you have heard the last episode, we were mulling about our concerns of calling an election this early, uh, I would say early, this early so soon, considering that the government of the day still has about six months left in their tenure before they have to call a general election. Now, what we discussed last time on the last episode is that there's a lot of pressing concerns here because there's been a lot of uh, vocal opposition towards this uh, holding this election during this time because now the uh, counterpoints that we see is that it's going to be held during a very precarious time within uh, the calendar because this is the time of the monsoon where uh, there's a lot of general concerns on whether or not it will be safe to go to the polling stations. Will there be instances of flash floods allowing people, uh, preventing people from being able to make it to the ballot boxes, make it to the voting stations? And would that discourage people from voting, teetering the whole idea of, uh, voter, of voter attendance? Because in the past few uh, elections, both uh, state elections and federal elections, you've seen the trend of um, voter attendance being on the downward slope. Not a lot of people are voting as much as they should. Well, now, will this really exacerbate the problem now? So I'll just leave it to you, Abis. That's just a bit of context. Let's hear your opinion on this, Abis. Yeah, uh, I, well, no one really can uh, deny on that. Even Zaid Hamidi uh, repeatedly, re as, as recent as I think yesterday, at the MIC uh, uh, conference that he said uh, uh, they were ready to 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 launch the campaign uh, during the uh, flooding uh, flooding flooding uh, uh, season, and on top of that, they were help they they were willing to help all those who are uh, misfortunate uh, to be affected by the flood. So they were aware of these people that who uh, demanded of uh, uh, such uh, what we call. Uh, premature uh, election, they're well aware of the situation, yet they decided to ignore it. Why, why, why I use the word ignore? Because simply what they're trying to uh, portray here is that they're putting themselves into space. Uh, as we know, uh, I would personally call this a general election of uh, Zaid Hamidi a general election because Adi, uh, this is, the I think, the only general election that no one wants it. The government of the day don't want it. The opposition of the day don't want it. Only Zahid Hamidi and his, uh, what we call a, a court cluster wants it. So they demands of this, and we, we all know why, because of the uh, uh, incoming uh, verdict that they're going to happen in the uh, federal court suit. So this is what I call, uh, Adi, a Zahid Hamidi election, and the outcome of this will be a, uh, what I call also a master stroke by uh, Zaid Hamid if he can uh, uh, put it off with uh, um, uh, perhaps a uh, landslide victory by Amno. He has that confidence, he thinks he has it, he thinks Amno has it, and by delaying and until next year, it would some sort of uh, uh, faded uh, the Malay support towards Amno. And let's see if he's right, but I don't think 
that will be the end of it. Uh, it's not going to be uh, one party that dominating all. I don't see that happening in the government or government as as uh, UMNO, PAS coalition and PN coalition, Mofakat National as well. Also in the PH, as we know, some of these uh, fractions, they were too uh, too divided. Even even uh, Tun Mahadir yesterday came up and uh, having said that uh, I'm okay to work with Anwar Ibrahim again. So this is uh, very confusing because only like what, less than a year or two ago, they were bickering on, on who's, when he's going to step down, Anwar was asking him when he's going to step down and when he's going to uh, hand over the leadership to Anwar, yet it didn't happen and Sheraton happened, uh, Sheraton move happened. And then, well, we, as we know today, it's a different government altogether. So yes, uh, to unpack from there, it's it's going to be a scary journey towards for the next uh, six or eight months uh, along the road. Yeah, I completely agree because this is definitely an election not for anybody. It's the only election that will benefit Zahid Hamidi, who is currently the president of, of the Amno Party. But you see, I think yesterday he made this quite um, scathing remark regarding towards, uh, I think this is definitely pointed towards the fence-sitters within Amno itself, saying that if uh, if we do not win this election, you will be next on the chopping block, implying that uh, there's some instances that um, threatening uh, people within the party itself, that they will suffer the same fate as he did being dragged from the courts with all these uh, corruption cases and so on and so forth. So it's almost like um, admission of guilt here, is that he knows okay. that he has to win this election. If not, uh, if the opposition wins, then he's going to be dragged back into the courts and then just saying that if I go down with the ship, you all are coming down with me. Uh, that, that's a huge, that's a very uh, blatant remark from him. And he's definitely gambling a lot here. And with considering how he was acquitted of several cases, he still has uh, some more cases to go. But the, the utter, the sheer confidence and uh, bravado on display here, I think we also agree with you that there, there must be some kind of momentum riding here. And that's why they are calling, he's pressuring um, the people, the prime minister to call for it. Because I think the prime minister so far is supposed to be the caretaker prime minister at this current moment. He has shown quite to have taken a pragmatic approach in terms of the political landscape here. He understands that he doesn't control uh, the numbers, but also he wants to make sure that the opposition is at bay. And so far, he hasn't given that much ammunition from the opposition to attack him or to criticize him. And that kind of goodwill has utterly dissipated by falling for these uh, pressure, uh, pressuring influences from Zahid and his camp to be able to, to do that. And I think... Um, even the deputy uh, president for Amno, Tokmat, was also in the firing line here when Zahid says that, you know, you'll, you'll also suffer the same as me. So it's it's really, to be honest, um, an election for to benefit Zahid Hamidi. And I think if he's able to pull this off, um, and if Ismail Sabri is still to remain the prime minister, it will cement Zahid Hamidi's power base in being able to control the entire landscape, control the environment within Amno, and solidify his uh, his... His, his regime basically within the party itself because if the prime minister has been pressured to do this and if uh, Amno still wins and the, the Paris National Coalition still controls the majority then I don't think it's going to be the prime minister really calling the shots here the facto power I believe would rest within uh, the president of Amno because traditionally speaking it's always the president of Amno that would become the prime minister in terms of uh, an election victory so that is a very um, disturbing thought because uh, we've, show, we've seen that a uh, character like Zaid Amidi is one that's uh, uh, not wanting for controversies here and there. He seems to have, um, he, he was a more, uh, a more of a lit fuse compared to the last two prime ministers in Muhyiddin Yassin and Isma Sabri is. So I think this would, of course, rally a lot of the, the Malay voters, but I think this will also uh, disenfranchise those that have been a, opposition towards Amno even further and I think we'll just this will just uh, create a bigger rift and bigger divide what what we re what I would like to see is a stronger prime minister who's able to be pragmatic as how Ismail Sabri has shown to be someone that's able to walk across the aisle being able to at least negotiate uh, and bridge the gap for the sake of um, for the prosperity of the country moving forward and I think the respect for the memorandum of understanding that was signed uh, between the government of the day and the opposition parties was a good um, 
hallmark of that. And it would be a shame to see that tradition disappear once you have an Amno strongman calling all the shots here. So this is a very uh, delicate situation for everybody and for the instigator in Zaid Hamidi himself. But um, this came also at a very interesting time because um, right a week before, the uh, at least three days before the dissolution of parliament, you had we had the, pres the tabling of the budget for the budget of Malaysia in parliament. So really, what was the point of all that, Hafiz? You know, they, they spent so many so much, so many days preparing for this budget, getting it ready, and then suddenly, hey, election. So what, what was the budget really for here, in your opinion? Uh, before I go to the budget, Adi, I would like to just uh, uh, comment further on uh, your comment just now, because this election also, I see that uh, it will be a make or break for UMNO, this is the election that will see UMNO evolve. Why I'm saying that is that, okay, let's take a first scenario. If UMNO win, Zahid Hamidi is going to be prime minister for sure. He will then, because we, all, we already know that uh, the uh, uh, party uh, election will take place after the general election, only after general election, it's already being agreed upon. So election, if he wins, Zahid Hamidi wins, he will dictate the uh, party conference later on with a huge majority or huge confidence that he will, uh, uh, you know, uh, defend his uh, seat as a uh, president. Now, the second scenario, if he loses this, we will see all these new faces coming right, uh, rise in Amno lineup here. Uh, people like KJ will be more aggressive. Uh, people like uh, uh, Anwar Musa would be having a uh, more important role in the uh, Menteri Kanan uh, if, we, if, we, if we can foresee him doing that. So these are the people that, are, you know, the decision of winning this election is hugely uh, impacting their political career, especially in Amno. I don't see them jumping over ship, uh, but uh, I, I can foresee that they will be uh, put on the sideline and will be uh, unfavorable for the, uh, for the, for the you know, supreme leaders and, uh, of course, for the ministerial post. So uh, this is also will evolve UMNO in a way. So if they lose, they will gain something. If they win, they will lose something. So this is a very interesting uh, situation in Amno's uh, long history book where we see how Amno will evolve. Will the people, as we call liberal people within Amno, like KJ himself, will he be able to find a, a grassroots support to, to, to help him bring to uh, 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 what do you call this, uh, to change Amno as we know a far right. Uh, uh, a political party today. So that's on uh, election and UMNO. Uh, about the budget just now, the uh, last week on Friday, that uh, we had a finance minister, a senator finance minister. I think this was uh, his third time uh, the, uh, presenting the budget. This is uh, the, what I call, like, on Friday, it was presented. But on the next Monday, only like two days after, the dissolved parliament. So what do you think it is? This is a, a budget for, for political campaign. Basically, that's it. Like, if you vote for us, you're going to get this much, this much, this much. And they're literally using the budget, the government's budget, as their political, uh, political, uh, political point. So I, I, I don't think this is right by any stretch, but uh, hey, in Malaysia, <laughs> we are normalized to... to to see all this, right? So, so I think this is a budget that uh, more of what we call in Malay gula gula politics. So this is uh, something that's very sweet. In fact, this is one of the biggest. I think there's a jump of I think thirty percent from the last uh, budget. Uh, it was around three hundred eighty billion ringgit to budget uh, this, and our and our national debt was already amounting a staggering amount of one trillion uh, uh, ringgit. So. Uh, I, I don't think we are in the position of uh, take, taking more debt, but of course, government of Keluarga Malaysia don't have 
uh, don't bet an eye on this because they're still uh, doing uh, the, the biggest budget ever in our history. So yeah, uh, uh, we, I would like to comment on further more on specific later on after this. But what's your thought about the budget from your side? Yeah, I think it's definitely an election budget here. It's the whole carrot and the stick kind of strategy is that you know they're dangling this to show that this is what can these are what's to be expected should the uh, the government of the day wins the, the party that controls the government of the day currently uh, wins the election. So and it's not without merit as well because like you said, is the it's a very lean budget. It's a budget that um, seems to be able to tackle into especially peripheral territories like Sabah and Sarawak. This is the biggest uh, budget allocation that Sabah and Sarawak, the state of Sabah and Sarawak, has been given uh, with a huge jump of about one billion each. But I want to try say this: like, if this is really a big budget, has this been really accounted for inflation? Because you know, if inflation is a constant element uh, in Malaysia's economy, then should, is that jump really the same value? Uh, of the budget that was that was uh, used last time, so that is really my main concern here. Is that it's just on the surface it looks very nice, but is the value really higher? Is the allocation a really a much higher value than what we got uh, in the last budget? And at the same time, there's that whole um, idea, the whole um, what made headlines as well was uh, the how do you say was it called the revision to uh, income tax. So if, especially for it cuts to in, uh, income tax for middle income groups. So this is where, let's say, about um, you get uh, you don't have you, income taxes for certain uh, groups of uh, in the cat economic categories are slashed to make way for more uh, economic activity through spending. But like we mentioned last time with uh, comparison to the mini budget that the uh, UK is presented, it's that you know, um, slashing all these uh, income taxes, uh, who really benefits from this? Of course, uh, this will help with the middle class, but what has, has I don't really see much of it tackling um, issues, uh, especially those uh, being faced by the B40 uh, income group, which is um, the lowest income group ca uh, categorization uh, within Malaysia. I didn't see really much of that of in other than um, monetary aid in terms of uh, cash payments. So it's really more or less just recycling the same um, programs that was introduced uh, for the last two years when it comes to assisting um, the people who are disenfranchised economically. It's just giving up uh, cash and cash uh, donations and um, nothing that really tackles at, at the heart of uh, what these uh, income groups actually face. So is this I, it, on paper maybe this budget looks really um, sound, but if we look a bit uh, underneath the surface, um, it's not really as comprehensive as uh, anybody would like. Especially that um, a lot of this budget here, the funding uh, for this budget will be uh, how do you say will be underpinned by uh, GST and GST uh, payments. So, and GST, we already know, is a very controversial uh, issue within Malaysia. Um, of course, it's a, it's a progressive tax system, which a lot of other countries have implemented. However, its implementation back during uh, Prime Minister Ajib uh, Razak's time was uh, very controversial. And I don't know now if Malaysia is still ready for that kind of uh, conversation uh, regarding progressive tax systems like GST. Um, I, don't, I would say there definitely is merit, but if we want to revive that imagery of how GST um, was being uh, used as a scare tactic, then I don't know if this would be would have that much efficacy. And will we see uh, the market having a sort of a shock? Will we see uh, traders um, trying to uh, take advantage of um, the, mis the misinformation surrounding the idea of GST? So there's still a lot of uncertainties here when it comes to this budget. It's a very attractive budget for most people, but I think those that are able to sniff out the inconsistencies and discrepancies within this budget can see that this is just, like you said, an election budget. It's just a sweetener to gain some political mileage and political support uh, moving forward. So I, I think uh, was Moody, the former Prime Minister Moody Yassin says that, uh, who's criticizing the budget and says that, oh, we will present a better budget. So this, everyone's going to come out of the woodwork saying that, you know, this budget is a terrible idea in certain areas. This is how we can improve. 
this is where, so it's going to be an election ticket for not just uh, the government of the day, but for every other political party that has a stake uh, within the general elections to come. So that's really my opinion on it. What do you think of this? Uh, uh, you touch on the uh, personal income tax uh, reduction uh, just now. Uh, here's my uh, uh, two cents about it. Okay, let's look at the uh, reduction that you mentioned just now. The, the reduction, the, the, the group of people that are entitled for this reduction were people actually in the middle 40, all right? So M40, the, the, the T20 don't really get a uh, reduction, uh, unlike in the UK where they get the top, 20, the top five actually got uh, reduction. Uh, and then we have uh, B40, they don't have any reduction at all, okay? Now let's dissect this. B40, they don't get any reduction from uh, uh, personal, uh, personal income tax, but they get a hash handout. So this is offset the, you know, like, okay, you want us to give you a discount on the tax that you're gonna pay, or we just give you a cash handout. So this is uh, another aid by the government. So the the, the net uh, transaction from here is they're gonna still get uh, more from the government. For the M40, I think the decision why they made uh, such a reduction is because that these people within this group of uh, income are what we call uh, urban poor or urban middle class, where they are they're earning a bit comfortable in terms of national average, but it's not really uh, in reality because these people living in the city, they pay uh, they pay highway tolls if oh, every time they go out at their house, they pay a lot of taxes in terms of. Uh, 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 using uh, infrastructures like parkings and whatnot. So these are the people that are actually earning kind of above average on paper, but in reality, they're living in KL, they're earning maybe 10K or 15K a month, but they don't really see that in terms of disposable, uh, uh, disposable uh, in, uh, expenditure. So you don't see that as a surplus in their hand. That's why I think the government give that reduction so that give uh, some sort of uh, uh, a breather for this uh, M40 that actually uh, a lot of them, majority of them are in major cities in Malaysia. So I think that's where the, the reasoning behind it. And of course, the top 20, the T20, we don't see any reduction. And I think that is, here's the mistake because um, if you just do a rough calculation, if we do have actually uh, put on uh, extra, like 1% to them, we can actually gain more than whatever that we are doing in terms of uh, reduc re uh, reduction on uh, the income tax for M40 and also gaining something from SST or GST. So this is the more progressive uh, approach, I would say, and also, not mentioning in the budget is that why are we still delaying inheritance tax? Like we, Malaysia has a lot of millionaires and we have a few billionaires, yet inheritance tax is still not a thing. This is where the government can make a lot of money. Uh, I don't know, maybe rich people die every day. So uh, there's something for government to earn from all this uh, uh, inheritance. So I don't know why they delaying this. Uh, what seems to be a norm in 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 developed country, uh, even uh, certainly country like Korea. Recently, the uh, the Samsung family had to pay ten billion uh, US dollar in terms of in inheritance tax. So this is something that we need to look for rather than just uh, keep focusing on the B40, M40 to, uh, to fork out their hard and money so, and keep saying that uh, the country is in debt. So I think we need to look at a different group of uh, Malaysian and look at them, hey, you have to contribute uh, equally because you earn more than uh, the average Malaysians. So I think this is where it should be uh, more balanced. But again, this is what we say, uh, election budget. So it, it has the tendency of uh, maintaining the status quo. You don't want to disrupt too much. You just want to play around here and there, but in the end, it will still 
uh, churn out a similar result. So that's what I think we're aiming for. Nothing very drastic because any drastic changes will uh, will will certainly uh, uh, provoke a good, uh, not so good uh, responses from the racket. So that's what I think the uh, administration of Ismail Sabri trying to avoid here. So being having a very conservative approach rather than have, having having made a mistake of mistrust in the UK that uh, later on they made a U-turn to 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 un, undo what they did to the uh, to the uh, mini budget that you mentioned just now. So that's uh, something maybe Ismail Sabri learned from mistrust. Adi. But I assume that now that they've uh, gauged the opinions and responses of how people reacted to the budget, they can fine-tune it now from there. But, I mean, you could have gotten it right the first time around, and there's a lot of things that could have been done better in terms of generating uh, income for the government, like you mentioned, inheritance tax. And also, you can you know find ways to be able to tax items which are mostly enjoyed by those that uh, occupy the T20 groups. But... I think you know when it comes to the, implementing these kinds of systems and institutional reforms, the issue is that a lot of the time, um, especially we can see this trend in developed countries, is that it's always the those that are affluent. They tend to have a bigger say in terms of where uh, the government policies will be. If you're someone with a lot of money in the bank, you're definitely going to vote for somebody with that says that you should have a lot of money in the bank. Definitely. So I think this comes with the whole hierarchical uh, hierarchical culture that uh, we have here is that if you're higher on the status ladder, then apparently your opinion is worth more. And I guess that also includes uh, personal wealth as well. And interesting that you also brought up like, yes, we make uh, on the national average, uh, very, like, a lot of the people that are going to be benefiting apparently from this uh, reduction in income tax is supposed to be uh, are people who earn comfortably, but in terms of uh, cost of living, it's completely, uh, neg um, made negligible because of the cost of living and uh, how living uh, in an urban area such as uh, KL can be very draining in terms of resources. Now, this this really cuts into like the whole issue of like I feel the whole um, foundation of uh, these kinds of lackluster budgets really comes from uh, the strength of our institutions in not being able to respond and adapt to the pressing challenges and the changing trends that are happening within the country. So I think just moving back this conversation towards the idea of uh, the elections, we still don't have a very um, comprehensive or sophisticated system for postal votes. And now with automatic voter registration and younger people being able to vote now, that 18 being now the legal voting age, this, this is, um, we're still, our systems are still not readily equipped for it. We're barely even equipped for if, let's say, a flash flood happens in the polling stations. Now we have to deal with this huge influx of more voters happening. And I mean, let's say this election happened when I was a student, when I was studying in the UK, right? So usually if you study in the UK, the semester starts in September. Now it's October and election is rumored to happen in November. I'm still going to be studying overseas and won't be able to cast my vote unless I fly back here, which is going to be extremely expensive. Now, and that's going to be the story for a lot of young Malaysians now. You don't even have to look far from, let's say, going all the way to the UK or, or internationally. Sabah, let's say Sabahan students that have just started their semester in uh, West Malaysia, they still have to find money to be able to fly back to vote. So this is almost um, locking out potential voters from their first time voting, and they do not have the option to have postal voting. So you know, with a budget such as this, and uh, that doesn't really address uh, foundational issues and with an uh, electoral system that is still uh, being hampered by bureaucracy, by um, an unwillingness to adapt and change, this really sets the trend and the mood of how Malaysia is going to be going forward, is that it's resilient to trying to change its systems to make it more, um, to improve the quality of life for people across the board. So. This is, um, I mean, just to end it on that note, this is um, institutional reforms, I say, um, for me, is, uh, should be a very pressing concern as well when it comes to deciding who our, our next leaders are. Of course, you know, they'll publish their fancy manifestos, but we've seen that manifestos aren't gospel uh, entirely uh, with uh, former Prime Minister Mahdi Muhammad. 
saying that you know the manifesto is just a guideline. So where can we? Re- I just want to pose this question: Where can we really put our trust in now when it comes to uh, elections? So it's just um, like a note to those that are listening to be a bit wary about who uh, we vote this time around because everyone is going to clamor for your vote. Everyone definitely has an interest in your vote, but it doesn't matter because as, a, as long as you vote and try your best to vote, that's uh, what really matters. Of course, if only it will be easier for everyone to be able to vote uh, this coming election, because at least we can all participate in the conversation, even if let's say the party we decide we want, we vote for doesn't win, at least there's a contribution, a, um, a civic duty that's performed. And we can just take it from there and see how it goes uh, moving forward. So yeah, I, I went on a really huge tangent over there, but I'll just pass it over to you, Afis. Uh, yeah, I, I I would like to argue, Eddie, I would like to use your argument on just now, like you said, that uh, uh, people that are more affluent would certainly have more say in deciding what kind of uh, taxes that they implemented on the, on, the, uh, 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 on the budget. I think the same argument could be said, uh, like, that certainly there's no political will from the politician side because they would like to maintain the status quo, not to reform the electoral uh, electoral system because it's benefited them for the last 60 years. So why would they want to change? And of course they know these people that actually moving, people that actually not staying in their place are majority are people from the rural area to uh, the city area. And we know people in the city tend to, not all, but most of them uh, uh, incline to uh, the opposition. So why would they want to... Uh, accommodate in their own destruction so i think i can see like also like you said like yourself like those who are actually had the opportunity to study abroad these are the people mostly unknown not uh, in favor of the government so yeah like why would they want to to facilitate that but having said that also if we really want to reform our sorry electoral system we should put uh, the EC under the parliament. So it can be checked and balanced by both opposition and the government. Don't put it under the government, put it under the parliament so that it can be, uh, you know, check and balance can be uh, more transparent uh, in the future. Let's start with that. So we know why certain gerrymandering uh, happened. Was it true because of that? The realignment of some of our constituents uh, been reported not so uh it doesn't have any uh make sense at all like certain certain places in let's just talk about our uh, local constituency here in tk Adi, if you're talking about dune like how luyang has a lot of voters but next door uh next door penampang would or Petatan have way way lesser than that and but both of them have a same equal say in the in the uh, speaker assembly, so that doesn't make sense at all. But of course, this only will uh, happen if we take they take the first step of putting EC uh, election election commission under the parliament. I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it's all tactics really being utilized, and it's amazing how the institutions are supposed to keep everything uh, balanced is. Uh, you can call the reputation into question here. Like, it's very, I had a funny story during the last election, during the uh, state election somehow. So me and my brother have the same like, address register on our IC. For some reason, I voted, had to vote in Api Api, and he had to vote in Likas. So <laughs> it's, oh. it's very, that happens to a lot of other people as well. It's like they have close family members that are somehow voting here and someone voting uh, in, in the next constituency. So it's, it's, um, it takes a lot of will here to actually try to reform. But like you said, why would anyone want to reform if what's broken is working for you and is putting everyone else at the, the opponents at a disadvantage? But I know there are a lot of uh, organizations out there that's working very, very hard to make sure that these reforms do come to light. And I hope we can see that uh, materializing somehow in, in the new future. But uh, at the end of the day, it still comes down to political will, whether or not the leaders are accepting uh, to accepting of the idea to level the entire playing field. 
of course, uh, the ones right now aren't interested in that because calling for an election at a very disadvantageous time for everybody other than yourself um, kind of sets the tone right there. But, you know, I hope um, to be proven that uh, these kinds of changes will be happening more sooner than later. But that's really up to That's just, I'll just leave it up there. Yeah. Uh... I think the only thing that you can do is hope and, and support all these uh, NGOs, activists that try to make the reform. Uh, well, that's uh, another domestic issue on, uh, on our books today. Uh, let's look out outside Malaysia. What do we have, Adi? Uh, okay, so I think uh, Hafiz brought this up is that uh, we wanted to, we did mention something about uh, certain happenings going around in in Iran, and this sparked a huge uh, international controversy and has just brought the entire um, question of the Ayatollah and the Islamic Republic's government into question, question here when it comes to upholding human rights. But uh, Hafiz, uh, will you take us a trip down to Iran, up to Iran? All right. Basically, uh, I think this is just a bring back a like Arab Spring vibe to me because what happening is just like one incident of uh, a, uh, uh, a very young girl, uh, Masa uh, Abini, where she was uh, allegedly killed because of morality police in Iran. The reason is, Adi, so I think it's going to surprise you, but uh, maybe a lot of listeners out there as well, because she didn't wear her hijab properly. So that's uh, very unheard of in, uh, if you are in Malaysia here, right? Like no one uh, going to, uh, uh, well, people are going to come up to you and say, hey, you need to fix your tudung. But no police going to come to you and like, hey, and they're certainly not going to harass you because you're not wearing the uh, hijab properly. So what happened to this poor lady that she got uh, uh, beaten and uh, eventually killed by uh, the police? And this incident not just happened to uh, one uh, young lady. It happened to another one, Nika, and I think another one is Serena. These are very young teenage girls in the age of 17, 16 years old. So it's part an outrage, uh, uh, not certainly because of the per se, uh, uh, because it's, it's considered an offense in Iran, not uh, wearing hijab properly, but also this is also what I think the uh, protest of anti-regime. This is just a catalyst to uh, what I call a uh, long-awaited uh, since the uh, Iran revolution in the, in the, in the, in the 70s. So they, the, the Iran feel they've been oppressed all this while by the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Khamenei. So it's, 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 it's time for them to, uh, uh, to have a price and not only in Iran, domestically in I think in more than 37 cities across Iran, but also outside the lead by uh, Iranian uh, diaspora in Canada, in, in, in America, of course, in UK as well. So we can see a global, global uh, reaction towards uh, the regime of Iran today. They try to oppose and silence, uh, especially the protesters. They cut off internet. They try to block mainstream medias about it, uh, but of course they can only do so much. Today's world is a world without uh, borders, so of course a certain TikToks uh, show up, YouTube videos show up as well uh, by the public uh, uh, taking pictures of police brutality. So uh, this is a government that have no regards towards the, uh, the people and uh, to make it even more complicated, Iran the other day just having uh, a deal with Putin, uh, but at the same time they agree on certain matter. They dis sorry, they disagree on certain matter about uh, the, the usage of uh, uh, how how Putin should conduct uh, Russia warfare in Ukraine. So this is very you know I think a very a trying times for the for the regime uh, Ayatollah Ali to 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 move forward from this. I I don't see him. Surviving, I can see Egypt in 2000. What, what, what was it? Was it 2012, 2010? Back then? 2011, I think. 2011. Yeah. yeah. So this is happening again, Adi, after 10 years shifting from Egypt to to a uh, little bit nearer to us, to Iran side. 
what's, yeah. what, what's, what's your reading from the situation? Yeah, I mean, it definitely does harken back to the whole Arab Spring back in 2011 in Syria, Egypt, and other uh, Levantine countries. But I think what is uh, back then, what we saw was more of a general idea of a revolution when it comes to um, uprising against the dictatorships here. But I've seen that the mobilization for revolution for revolutionaries coming out of the woodwork in Iran ha has a very, um, how I would say, a very feminist undertone here. And because it's um, it threats at the heart of the idea of uh, human rights, especially the rights of, uh, of women to be able to uh, have sovereignty over how they dress and how they conduct their lives. And this came in at a very, um, I mean, the ingredients were really there because the, even after the abdication of uh, the Shah of Iran, uh, there was always still a very fierce opposition against the regime of the Ayatollahs. And there was, it was this, always this idea that um, you know, uh, Iran, th this connection towards uh, Iran's history hasn't always been Islamic. There's also been the, uh, a Zoroastrian uh, uh, influence on it that stretches back to 500 BC. And it's, it's supposed to, it's almost like a manifestation of uh, Iran's entire history that it's not going to be completely dictated by just what happened in the last 1,000 years. So it's it's really like an awakening uh, of of a very Iranian character. Well, uh, because I've met a lot of uh, Iranian people, uh, for, and there's always been this um, uh, fierce opposition towards uh, the moral policing and the uh, the very puritanical um, measures that has been taken uh, by the Ayatollah and his uh, and his group, like. We saw the mobilization of violence on the, these protesters here that are coming up, um, protesting for the death of this woman. And I think there was about uh, yesterday, I think in uh, Zahedan, where the city of Zahedan, where at least 90 people were killed by security forces in Iran. And you know, to be able to mobilize troops to murder your own citizens en masse in that kind of uh, uh, numbers is, is very appalling. And this is Iran is by no means a backwards country. It's, it's a very developed country. It's a very, um, very heritage rich country as well. It's definitely not like uh, its neighbors such as uh, Pakistan or Afghanistan. This is a country that has a very long and treasured history. A, a huge bureaucratic systems has been in place way before other countries have been there. But this also does, this is, um, so to see that this is uh, coming up, um, I think it's also an indication that a lot of um, middle, because when we look at the uh, revolutions of this kind of nature, it always comes, it's always, you can associate it a lot with the rise of a, a more aware uh, middle income group, the middle class, especially when it comes to women taking um, more opportunities in the, work in the workplace, becoming more educated, they're becoming more aware, they're more aware of uh, what their intrinsic rights are and that they should be fighting for it. So the ingredients, like I said, are really there to foment um, change to happen in Iran because this has not just happened in uh, the Arabic countries, but also we've seen this kind of trend emerging in uh, a lot of places in Latin America where a lot of protests, a lot of revolutionary forces has been uh, led with a very uh, feminist undertone by leading these kinds of uh, these movements. It's no longer those... Um, macho, strongman, revolutionary archetypes. Now we see a different kind of revolutionary that is more um, more fighting under the banner for human rights, for the sovereignty of the individual. So this is what I can take from what's happening in Iran. And is um, the fact that there's a universal support for uh, these people who are protesting against uh, a very oppressive regime uh, just goes to show that... Um, Sadly, in any other revolution or any other kind of uh, social upheaval, is going to be a great human cost. But um, the bravery cannot be understated here. Is that this is fighting back for one's own country, fighting back for one own uh, sovereignty and sovereignty and fate of the country. But we, maybe, in terms of uh, international implications, we could see these kinds of uh, um, how do you say these forces slowly um, precipitating in other countries with uh, even worse human rights abuses of women, uh, such as uh, Pakistan or Afghanistan, which uh, has recorded lots of human rights uh, violations, especially against, um, sorry, excuse me, against women. 
So this could be of a trickle-down kind of uh, nature that just precipitates towards the entire region. Uh, because the idea of human rights and the idea of like uh, Western systems, such as Western ideas of thinking, uh, we've sort of uh, inculcated in Malaysia and a lot of Southeast Asia. But in this part of the world, Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Pakistan, these are still very uh, new ideas, very new concepts that are still working its way to become part of the mainstream, to become a more um, are properly articulated on their own uh, respective countries. So I see it as like um, the winds of change are happening, whether or not um, it will be snuffed out, all these flames of changes will be snuffed out by increased use of military forces and security forces. That's really up to the decision makers uh, in Tehran itself. But um, if this is going to be a full-blown, um, almost national um, movement, then I think we would see the same situation that's happening in uh, Latin America, where these kinds of protests and uh, movements are making a huge difference in um, oppressive regimes in those regions as well. I think Iran will also follow that certain trend right there. Yeah, certainly, especially a protest or revolution that being led by uh, uh, feminists. So it's uh, very unheard of in Middle East. So it's an interesting time also in Middle East where this is uh, something like this, like you mentioned, is happening. So uh, I think that's on... Uh, that's it on uh, Iran issue here. Uh, moving mo moving swiftly on to uh, the, of course, a continent that we'd never skip, uh, Europe. So again, uh, you have something interesting to talk about in Europe, Adi? Yeah, so when we, what I saw right after, the day after the budget was tabled, there was this uh, attack on this bridge between Russia and Crimea, the annexed territories of Crimea. This massive bridge that took at least four years to complete was bombed and few people were killed. And that sent a lot of uh, speculation as to who is the culprit, who is the perpetrator. So Russia and the Kremlin was very adamant that this was an act of terrorism and was responded in kind towards uh, Ukraine, not directly, but there was an increased uh, escalation of force that was applied towards uh, Ukraine um, linking to this, uh, to this attack here. So th this is a very huge symbolic blow towards Russia because back in 2014, Russia was able to annex uh, the territories of Crimea and built a bridge to connect both Russia and Crimea together to be, so that Russia is able to enforce its administrative uh, functions and systems onto the annexed territories. And we can see that that kind of playbook is happening towards uh, its uh, confrontation with Ukraine. So this is almost like a blow that cuts off um, that cuts off one finger from Russia in time to grasp what, what was formerly uh, independent uh, sovereign uh, territory that is, doesn't belong to them. So with this kind of uh, escalation of tensions and conflict, there leads some speculation that uh, Putin would retaliate uh, with uh, great considerable force. And you know, with all the, and some doomsayers also are speculating that, you know, nuclear uh, application of nuclear weapons is on the horizon, which I don't really believe is going to be the case here. If Russia had wanted to uh, utilize nuclear weapons, it would have done so a few months back already, especially a few weeks ago when it was losing its foothold in Ukraine with the new renewed counteroffensive. So, it's another episode with, uh, within the whole Russian and Ukrainian conflict that's happening. And there's still a lot of uh, conspiracy theories over who really is uh, behind this. Is this a Russian uh, psyop that's uh, trying to just put blame on certain parties? Or is it really um, uh, an attack that se seeks to uh, showcase that uh, a spirit of uh, defiance is still very much alive within Ukraine and within uh, Annex Crimea. So what, what do you think of this whole story? I, I know you like to indulge in all these conspiracy theories of this, so uh, <laughs> I like to hear yours here. Now we have on record, Adi calling me love uh, conspiracy theories. Yeah, who I'm doesn't so, like I'm, a conspiracy theory? <laughs> I'm sort of like Alex Jones of Kopitya Banza now. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't have any conspiracy theory now to to, to talk about, but uh, I just want to call the 
I just want to call out the hypocrisy of Western media once again, where uh, I did. I think Russia did retaliate a little bit on the uh, bridge issue because they uh, they fire a few missiles to certain cities in in, in Ukraine to retaliate on that uh, uh, bridge blown up. But uh, what uh, what uh, what I'm trying to say here is that uh, do you remember in 2003 the shock and awe uh, operation in Iraq where uh, including America and other developed countries, so-called developed countries, that they use a lot of missiles to 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 to, to de 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 uh, devastate uh, the whole uh, Iraq, so that they can uh, bomb democracy into uh, Iraq, and and the same thing, the same argument today that they use, uh, I mean the same tactic that uh, Russia used today, is a bit rich for the Western to call out the Russian to use the same tactic that they did in Iraq, that they did in Libya, that they did in Afghanistan, of course, also very recently, with, uh, under Trump and uh, Obama administration, thousands of missiles. Uh, I think reportedly in Ukraine, up until today, Russia only deployed around in the hundreds of uh, missiles. It's not even comparable to what America did to all this uh, country that I mentioned just now. So this, in comparison, it's no, it's no comparison at all. But the hypocrisy of Western media trying to highlight how evil Putin, Russia. I mean, I'm not justifying uh, killing on uh, mass of uh, uh, the innocent people of Ukraine. But if you were gonna go to that, uh, if if you wanna argue on that uh, point, of course. The same thing has to be done of people in Palestine, of course, as well, where Israel uh, launching missiles every fortnight or every month to, 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 to the uh, occupied territory of uh, Gaza. So certainly the same suffering that the Ukrainian feel, of course, being uh, 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 experienced as well by the Palestinian, the Afghanis, and also the Iraqis. So yes, uh, having said, you know, it's a long, it's a long uh, situation from the uh, bridge, Crimea bridge, uh, what just happened. But uh, you know, this how we see the bigger picture. I think is important as as the global citizen here. Like uh, you know, uh, I I always uh, make um, funny remarks that uh, uh, be be careful on on what sources of news you get from because the biasness is is right there so you have to be aware of if you're reading if you're reading far or uh, left-wing uh, uh, newspapers so you have to be aware of their biases and and not to be trapped into uh, their propaganda uh last point on this Adi, i think what i want to bring up is that how uh, russia uh having a, a a, a different, I think, a different goal than what we thought. Like, uh, I think last month where they're losing some of the region in, 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 in Ukraine, I think it was on purpose. They certainly didn't call this an occupation of Ukraine. They call it this special military operation. So whatever their goal is, is still special to them. We do not know what's their KPI. So certainly what I think they achieved what they wanted to achieve. Just like you said, if they want to use the nuclear weapon, they can already use it months or back in February, uh, whatever months uh, ago. So certainly they 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 achieve what they wanted to achieve, and now I think it's just damage control, uh, cultural damage for for what's happening, and try to maintain the recent uh, what we call referendum. Uh, results that uh, we gained from uh, uh, the four region that got annexed recently. So yes, uh, I think this is a, uh, a win for Russia in a way, but also uh, losing certain battles, especially in Crimea bridge uh, situation. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, it's how can you define success? Really, it's Russia, even though Russia is on the back on the back foot right now for renewed counteroffensive. Can we really say that they have uh, lost this conflict when a lot of its objectives have been met as well? So, 
it's uh, it's very interesting to see what kind of uh, how this conflict will switch. We've already said that uh, it's moving from conventional warfare to something of administrative warfare, where Putin is scrambling to gain some kind of legitimacy by implementing administrative systems in these four occupied regions in Ukraine. So another ball game is being played here, which is less conventional, more asymmetrical, without um, application of force and military uh, forces uh, being the standard of the day. But you could say that seems to be the case for a lot of conflicts nowadays happening around the world where it's not conventional forces that are are that determine a victory. There's also now with the rise of social media that is able to record everything live as it happens. Like I remember during the whole um, gas attack uh, back in Syria in 2017, uh, what was very interesting for a lot of people is that you could see live streams of these attacks happening as it happens before Facebook inevitably takes them down, as, which is a shame because uh, it cuts off uh, any kind of awareness. And we've seen that, especially with uh, Ukraine and Russia, because you can see all these kinds of TikTok videos of Ukrainian soldiers uh, stealing tanks or stealing equipment or fooling around. It's this very raw portrayal, uh, very underground portrayal of, of the conflict itself. So, and the fact that this has gained a lot of international uh, attention, and which I think uh, is sort of unprecedented. You didn't see this kind of coverage uh, during Libya, during Syria, or during Iraq. But then again, the medium and channels for communicating those uh, conflicts was more limiting compared to now. But what, what I see is that there's going to be, this is not the end for the conflict. There's going to be more retaliations. And in that retaliation, the other party will retaliate and the other party will retaliate back for that retaliation. It's going to go uh, back and forth, back and forth until some kind of decisive action is to be taken uh, that could be in the form of uh, Ukraine actually uh, pushing out the Russians or Russian take, the Russians taking more uh, desperate measures by sending more advanced uh, military forces or if the West decides to finally intervene. But that uh, this is another episode, another flashpoint between the conflict. And like you said, like Hafiz says, that be careful where the sources lie. Like, of course, Russia would say this is an attack on te uh, a terrorist attack while Western media will mostly focus on the retaliation that Russia has made, which is targeting, uh, making tactical strikes on uh, key infrastructure in uh, Kiev. So it's where the visibility of this conflict can really change your perception of uh, where this whole situation is going. But that's really all I have to say on that. Um, of course, there's going to be more developments coming up in the next few weeks, especially with the referendum coming up. And I just leave it at that. There's a lot more things to be happening. All the topics we've covered is an, are ongoing issues. The things are developing as they happen. With elections coming soon, um, Iran will continue to will continue to see more and more uprisings happening and more upheaval. In Russia, we're going to see more Russia and Ukraine. They're going to see more episodes of escalating tensions and conflict, or maybe de-escalations, hopefully, as we see the year start to wind down and we move to the to the year 2023 coming soon so um that's just all for me i'll leave it to your office to wrap it up all right so yeah uh just like last episode where i mentioned that uh, a lot of things happening like in iran that we didn't have time to talk about in last episode and then we did in this episode so uh, another recent development adi uh, saudi arabia in opec uh, decided OPEC to uh, reduce the oil production and it uh, causes anger by Biden saying that there will be consequences. So as we follow this week, we will unfold this chapter of how America going to react to OPEC's decision to reduce uh, oil production. So we will talk about this, I think, in the next episode. So any of you out there, if you are interested to join in in our conversation, just give us a uh, a text, drop us a, a private message on our uh, Facebook or Instagram, and then we'll get in contact with us and we will be here talking to you. So I think that's it for this episode. Uh, it's very interesting week this week. It, this is uh, uh, second week of uh, October 2022. So there will be a lot of uh, world events and, of course, domestic events happening. We will unfold in the next episode. So with that, uh, 
goodbye for now and from Adi. All right. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope to hear from you and we hope that you'll be looking forward to the next episode. That's all from me. All right. See you guys in the next one.